Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. It's a chilly morning. I, I'm I'm just thrown off by the temperature. Welcome. <laughs> the phone number 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. I couldn't decide whether or not to sleep with the window open last night. I mean, to make it, it was in the 40s last night. It's still cold out there right now. Um, it's wonderful uh, outside right now. Um, where are we? Uh, it's 50 degrees at my house right now on my side porch. Actually, it's 48 degrees. Uh, I have a little remote thermometer. I can access even the temperature on my computer. It is 48 degrees on my side porch. Uh, my in-laws in Carrollton, it's 45. It's, it's 46 in Atlanta right now. It's, it is fantastic across the listening area this morning. Chilly, so I couldn't decide whether or not to open my my windows last night or not uh, because I didn't want to wake up this morning and not have a voice if there was pollen in the air. So I slept in. Um, the air conditioner at some point turned off. I, I should have slept with the windows open. Maybe I'll do that this weekend. It's going to be wonderful outside as well. Okay, I, I got to start with this note. Uh, Elijah Cumming has died. Uh, Elijah Cumming is the chair of the Government Oversight Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives. Republicans and Democrats alike actually really, really like Elijah Cumming, just so you understand. Um, he was a, a partisan Democrat. He really did not like President Trump, has been a, a blistering critic of President Trump for some time. Uh, but behind the scenes, he actually uh, was well-respected by both the Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, they very much liked him. Uh, they, they also, um, they, behind the scenes, they thought they could get deals done with Elijah coming in ways that they couldn't get done, uh, with a lot of other Democrats. And th so they very much appreciated his willingness behind the scenes to, uh, help them build bipartisan coalitions and help them support legislation, um, Elijah Cumming actually has helped uh, Congressman Jody Heiss here in Georgia. Uh, for those of you uh, who aren't familiar with Congressman Heiss, J Jody Heiss is on the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, he has been routinely primaried by Repub establishment Republicans in Georgia. Uh, they do not like him. Uh, in fact, uh, Congressman Tom Graves um, and... Um, uh, what's his name? Kevin McCarthy, the House Majority Leader, worked together to remove Jody Heiss from the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, Georgia has typically always had two seats on the House Armed Services Committee, even in the minority. Uh, and I am told from people who were in the room that uh, Tom Graves, who is friends with uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, when the, the issue came up, uh, Kevin McCarthy made a vote to keep Jody Heiss on the Armed Services Committee when they went into the minority, and Tom Graves, being from Georgia, refused to second it, uh, costing Jody Heiss not only his seat, but costing Georgia its second traditional seat on the House Armed Services Committee. It was, it was Tom Graves of Georgia who actually made that happen. And uh, Heiss, he's not well-liked by establishment Republicans because of his affiliation with the House Freedom Caucus. But Heiss has had an idea for a number of years, and that has been to 
uh, stop the compensation given to retired presidents and first ladies. And Heiss's point has been, and I think he articulates it quite well, that um, when presidents retire, they go on corporate boards and they give speeches for a million bucks a pop. They fly in private jets. They don't need expanded pensions and annuities. The first ladies are, are well off when they retire. Uh, Jimmy Carter is the last elected president to have retired back to the home he lived in before he became president. Before him, Harry Truman was the guy who did it. Typically, presidents retire and they buy mansions. Barack Obama did it. George W. Bush did it. Bill Clinton did it. Uh, oftentimes, they don't retire back to where they went. Um, it just it, it's it's crazy. Um, so Heiss has this legislation that would scale back the amount of money given to retired presidents and to first ladies when uh, presidents die. And Elijah Cumming, the House Government Oversight Committee chairman, helped him get it through the House of Representatives on a bipartisan basis. Uh, it, it had to go through Elijah Cummings' um, committee as government oversight. And so he was willing to work with a House Freedom Caucus member to get a piece of legislation through on a bipartisan basis that uh, curtails the amount of money retired presidents make. Uh, Elijah Cumming dead this morning. He's had some ongoing health complications. Uh, widely praised this morning by Republicans and Democrats in Congress. Uh, now, uh, NBC News has a very big correction up on social media. Social media is becoming a blight uh, to everybody. L l let me tell you. My story about social media, I, years ago, it would have been 2009, I guess, said something really terrible on Twitter. Uh, there's no need to repeat. Well, I can't repeat it here because uh, every radio station that I was on would, would drop the show if I said what I said. <laughs> it was bad. Um, and, you know, so... It was it was a wake up call for me in what I said. It was a very derogatory remark about Justice Souter when he left the Supreme Court. And it actually, the the funny thing was, to a degree, it wasn't actually even my statement. It was a friend of mine who had said it. Uh, I was with a group of friends. Of course, it was all guys. Um, everybody got a great laugh out of it. He was too chicken to put it up on social media, so I was the idiot who did, and so I got blamed for it. And. I it was certainly a learning experience for me in that up to that time, I just viewed Twitter, for example, as just me and my friends talking and didn't really pay attention to the fact that other people paid attention to me. Well, the fallout from it, it, it still has ramifications to this day. I mean, people will want to carve it on my tombstone when I'm when I'm dead. Uh, it was 10 years ago that I said it and people still bring it up to this day that you can't trust this guy when he says he's a Christian or, or he believes certain things because look at what he did 10 years ago. Uh, it, it was an eye-opening experience in how people hang on to the bad things you've done, particularly in the age of social media. People hang on to the bad things you've done, and they don't ever want you to be able to uh, grow beyond them. You are defined by the worst thing you've ever done, unless you, particularly in this day and age of social progressive secularism, if you bow to them, you're forgiven, and they hold on to the bad things you've done as a way to force you into what they believe. Their, their social uh, secular ideology, hostile to people of faith, hostile to Christians, hostile to conservative or traditional values, uh, unless you abandon all of that, you're never forgiven. You are defined by the worst thing you've done. Um, I tell people all the time that, you know, there, there's the story in the Bible of the Jesus casting the legion of demons out of the possessed men and putting them into the herd of pigs. Uh, the pigs run down the bank into the lake and they all drowned. And what 
the Bible leaves out of that story is once the big drowned, the demons had to go somewhere. They went to Twitter and they all got accounts and that explains social media to this day. Well, the media more and more is using social media and they're using social media because there is this desire in the popular press these days to be first, not necessarily to be accurate, but to be first. And we saw this going back, for example, I, I, re, I distinctly remember this confluence of the internet, social media, and reporting um, back to the uh, John Edwards situation where it was a reporter at Politico who reported that John Edwards would be dropping out of the race for president, and it turns out he wasn't. I believe that was the announcement, actually, that his wife Elizabeth had cancer uh, when he made the public statement. It was not a statement that he would be dropping out of the race. It was interpreted that way, and it actually had an impact on John Edwards in the race uh, that people thought he was going to drop out, and then he didn't, and it came across initially as he had changed his mind at the last minute, which wasn't true. Uh, the reporters just got it wrong, but it was this desire to be first with the news as opposed to be accurate with the news, and we've seen this spiral more and more. Uh, the Drudge Report still sends men Massive amounts of traffic to media outlets. And the first media outlet to get a story up may get the Drudge link, and Drudge will send them massive amounts of, of traffic. That traffic generates ad revenue based on clicks. Therefore, they want to be first. They, they want to be out of the gate. And it trips them up repeatedly. And now with social media, the social media phenomenon out there has reporters running to Twitter to get news out and they get the news wrong and that wrong news, the fake news, gets tens of thousands of retweets and then they send out a uh, correction that gets 100 or so. Well, in, in this case, uh, NBC News sent out a tweet uh, at 11.41 a.m. yesterday that said President Trump says Turkey's invasion into northern Syria is not our problem and the Kurds are not angels and questions their fighting abilities without U.S. forces. He asserts that Syria is protecting the Kurds. That was the NBC News tweet at uh, 11.41 a.m. yesterday. Well, at 2.18 p.m. yesterday, they had to send out a correction after it was widely circulated. And there, there's a bit of irony here we'll get to. Um, it, their correction was a previous tweet misquoted President Trump saying Turkey's invasion into northern Syria is not our problem. What he actually said was they have a problem at a border. It's not our border. It's not between Turkey and the U.S. Big difference between not our problem and they have a problem at their border and it's not our border. He's not saying it's not a problem. Now, here's the funny thing. If we're honest here, there were a number, and I, I, I've decided to start calling them bro conservatives because it's very much like bro country. If you're familiar with the bro country uh, phenomenon, um, particularly if you're in the Southeast listening and you listen to country music, you hear it all the time on, on radio. It's very much, um, let's go out get drunk and, and have fun. And there's no real depth to the songs beyond just getting drunk and having a good time. Uh, there, there are many, many, many laments, uh, of the bro country phenomenon, the 20, 30 something guys who still try to dress like they're teenagers and, uh, have these innocuous lyrics. Some of them now trying to rap in their songs. It's really awful stuff. 
Um, there's some, you know, Luke Bryant used to get blamed for this stuff and, and his lyrics over time, as he's had more life experiences have gotten deeper, but man, you listen to say, you listen to even Garth, go to Garth Brooks or, uh, go to some of the Alan Jackson songs, go, go to Reba McIntyre and, and you've got these, this depth of storytelling in their songs that you don't necessarily hear in some of the, the newer country artists. And they've, people have taken to referring to it as bro country. We're going to get drunk, screw around, and have a have a good time. And that's the depth of the lyric. And I think we're seeing this in conservatism now, this bro conservatism of uh, Trump's owning the left. Hell yeah, the, the, this is awesome. And there's your policy. I mean, the public policy is let's, let's just own the left. So people saw this tweet from, from NBC News that the president said it's not our problem. And people were like, yeah, Trump's awesome. It's not our problem, man. He's telling it truth to power, bro. Except that's not actually what he said. Uh, you could say he, he came close to that. It, they have a problem at the border. It's not our border. And had, had NBC News accurately reported that, they are like, yeah, man, he's, he's, he's got this problem. And it's a problem over there. It's not here. They're killing each other there. They're not killing each other here. Yeah, man. It's not very deep policy-wise. It, it's very much like the bro country lyrics. Um, we're owning the left. We're making all the right people mad. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this in the past. We're making all the right people mad. Oh, what is it supposed to mean? You're, you're Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham has always been the squishy Republican. Lindsey Graham is very clearly mad right now. Um, I, and I guess if you want to own Lindsey Graham, okay, that's fine. You're holding Lindsey Graham. The Problem, of course, is Lindsey Graham is the chairman of the committee that will oversee an impeachment of the president. And Lindsey Graham is none too happy about the situation. Uh, if we are not praying for the Kurds, we should all be ashamed of ourselves. It was the Kurds who worked with the American military to destroy ISIS. If we abandon the Kurds, it will be dishonorable. It will be a disaster. So Erdogan uh, invaded Turkey. He has, uh, excuse me, Syria. He has created a vacuum for ISIS to come back. The Kurds cannot fight Turkey and control the 10,000 ISIS prisoners. Uh, I am looking to President Trump to change this. I will do anything I can to help him, but I will also become President Trump's worst nightmare. I will not sit alone on the sidelines and watch a good ally of the Kurds be slaughtered by Turkey and watch Iran move into uh, Syria and become another nightmare uh, for Israel, this is a defining moment for President Trump. He needs to up his game. Well, listen, I, I have long been a Lindsey Graham critic as, as being too squishy, but he, he's making some sense here. But the, the bro conservative movement is like, yeah, Lindsey Graham is mad. Lindsey Graham is bad. Well, OK, but what about his argument? Uh, and this is kind of the problem here. Uh, we're seeing a conservatism now that is all about uh, making the right people mad as opposed to coming up with the right public policy and it was kind of funny to see people grab onto this NBC tweet and and be excited that yeah the president's speaking truth to, to all the right people saying it's not a problem and that's not actually what he said and NBC News got it wrong as well much to NBC News's discredit um, stirring people up on this and it's not just a phenomenon of the of this bro conservatism that really lacks any sort of intellectual heft to it it is the problem with the media, if they continue to get these things wrong, like, for example, yesterday, the president accurately said in a press conference with Italy's president uh, that the United States and Italy have a shared heritage going back to ancient Rome. That is an accurate statement. Uh, if you read our founding fathers, they were deeply interested in the Roman Republic. 
They modeled the United States in, in many ways on the Roman Republic. Uh, you go to Washington, D.C., you see the Greco-Roman architecture uh, that the American founding fathers were very insistent upon. They were fascinated with that history. They saw, in fact, if you read, go, go back to even um, what, what uh, Robert Byrd of the KKK, who became the uh, Grand Dragon of the KKK and then or Grand whatever and, and went to the U.S. Senate as a Democrat, uh, had an entire book tracing of the American uh, institutional heritage of the Senate back to the Roman Senate. And you had blue check marks on Thursday. Actually, Mr. President, that's that's not true. This, this silly president gets it. No, actually, the president got it right. And they were willing to ignore all of this history to blast the president and have these things circulated on social media. Social media brings out the worst. It's brought out the worst in me. It's brought out the worst of the media. They are discrediting themselves by running these sorts of things. But then there are people who pick this stuff up on the left and the right. They pick up the fake stuff and run with it and discredit themselves as well. At some point, you got to go actually see now when the reporters push stuff out on social media is what they're saying accurate. And at least NBC News corrected itself. It just took it a while to do. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson. Yes, you can call in. Now, the computer rebooted right as I was going on this morning. The, the our, our call screening computer decided it needed to reboot itself. I, I don't understand Windows machines. I used to understand Windows machines, uh, but I have uh, been so invested in Macs for so long that I just, the, the new Windows updates just boggle my mind but you know down at their core it's like you can bring up windows 3.1 in any event the computer's rebooted and you can call in uh 877-97-ERIC 877-973-7425 all right i i spent way more time on all of that than i intended and we got to get to the shout fest uh nancy pelosi the white house released this picture of nancy standing up and pointing shaking her finger at President Trump at a press conference yesterday, uh, she stormed out uh, with Chuck Schumer and with um, Steny Hoyer. They left the White House meeting, walked out on the president, said he was being hostile and belligerent and the rest. To undo the damage he has done. Thank you. Go ahead. What we witnessed on the part of the president was a meltdown. Sad to say. Speaker Pelosi, did the impeachment in the did not come up. It did not come up. None at all. No, it did not come up. But he called you a communist? Can you just No, he didn't call you. He didn't call us a communist. He said, yes. He said, let's just clarify that. He said the when he started calling Speaker Pelosi a third-rate politician. Which I said, I wish you were a politician, Mr. President, then you would know the art of the possible. Can the Republicans stay? Some of the other members on both sides stayed behind. They wanted questions. I waited a moment because I wanted to ask him the question about intelligence reports on the Turks and Syrians guarding ISIS, which I think is By the way... The president is right on that. You do need to understand that that some of the Kurds in northern Syria are communists. They, they actually are. Uh, they're, they're a militant nationalist communist movement. Uh, but at the same time, they've been allied with her. Um, they are with with her, with, with us. Um they have been allied with the United States against the uh, against ISIS, and what happened is you, you need to understand that this group is um, it's a communist group that 
was deeply, deeply radical for a long period of time, but as most of its most radical members were killed off on the battlefield, it has to some degree mellowed. It's still got some terroristic elements. In fact, it's listed as a terrorist group in the United States. But they allied with the Peshmerga Kurds, uh, who are the northern Iraqi Kurds, who are actually our real allies, who are really good people. And uh, we've been funneling money and arms to the Peshmerga Kurds and turning a blind eye when they've given them to the PKK, the communist Kurds, as they've all been fighting ISIS together with us. And we really didn't care because they were all fighting ISIS with us. It's kind of a complicated situation. But, yeah, this White House mess, we'll get into it when we come back. <laughs> Texting a, a member car. So I, 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 I want to get into the impeachment stuff later because the turkey stuff is more important. But um, So, you know, I, I, I ran through this yesterday in the third hour of the show. I went back to every impeachment conducted by the House going back to Nixon has had an actual formal vote to go into an impeachment inquiry. And uh, the Democrats are not doing this right now. And I pointed that out there. Well, you, we're just we're doing the initial fact finding. And then we'll have a formal vote of impeachment. And what they're telling me is that they they actually think, contrary to Republican claims that this is going to happen by Thanksgiving, they're thinking Christmas, and that would push a trial into January. And so it would come out of the gate around the time of the Iowa caucuses. Um, but they were not happy at me for pointing out that uh, all of these impeachments, going back to Nixon, started with a formal vote to actually have an impeachment inquiry. So anyway, that's where we are. Uh, so uh, before I get anywhere else, this is this is actually happening. Happened overnight. Uh, morning is so seven hours ago. Um, there was a rush hour, morning rush hour in London. And the subway system. Have you heard of the Extinction Rebellion people? I was going to play some audio on the program of the Extinction Rebellion people. And the Extinction Rebellion people... Uh, I I can't play the audio because there's so much profanity. They're losing their minds. The Extinction Rebellion people are people who believe, they believe that we're at the end of the world, that we really have a decade left. I mean, these people believe it. It is a religious fervor to their belief. They believe by faith that the world is coming to an end in a decade if we don't take radical action right now. And the radical action is we have to immediately stop fossil fuel. We have to immediately stop cars. We have to immediately turn off air conditioners. we got to do all of these things immediately. And in, in Great Britain, they are literally super gluing themselves to the asphalt. There's hilarious video last week. Some woman, she had on her backpack, she had glued her one hand down and then thought, oh, I need to take my backpack off. <laughs> she tried to and started just getting upset. She couldn't take her backpack off anymore because she had already super glued her hand to the asphalt. One dude super glued himself to the top of an airplane. Yeah, he was at Heathrow, I think. It was a, it was actually a jet. I mean, they were they were ready to push back, and the guy somehow got up on this plane and super glued himself to the top of the plane. Well, two dudes uh, overnight in London got on the got in the subway system there, the tube, and they got on top of a train during rush hour, during morning rush hour. And it looked like that, well, first they were protesting and people began to worry they were going to super glue themselves to the top of the trains and screw up the morning rush hour. So literally the commuters dragged these guys off the top of the trains and started beating the snot out of them. (laughs) 
mob rule by the commuters who have had enough of the Extinction Rebellion people. I, I got to tell you, um, if you if you really, really want to see what it would be like if if you wanted to have uh, if democrats in this country really did want to confiscate people's guns i mean look at look at this mob in britain uh, dragging these extinction rebellion people or, or or look at how these people are willing to turn everyone against them most people in britain are overwhelmingly sympathetic to climate change arguments and these people are completely undermining support for that movement because they're tying up people's commute in the morning very interesting dynamic there to watch okay 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 um, so let, let's get into the serious situation. I want to read a Twitter thread to you guys because, um, it, the guy is legit and he really does a good job of explaining one of the biggest issues I have with the situation in Syria is that there are so few people who are willing and able to accurately um who are willing and able to accurately explain what's going on there's some breaking news by the way though i need to i need to just tell you real quick uh the associated press has obtained gordon sunland's uh prepared remarks uh gordon sunland is the european union ambassador he's testifying to the house of representatives in their impeachment inquiry against the wishes of the white house and the state department uh, he intends, according to the prepared statement obtained by the Associated Press, to tell lawmakers he was disappointed President Trump directed him to work with Rudy Giuliani. Uh, Rick Perry, as well, is telling the Wall Street Journal that he talked to Rudy Giuliani, uh, and Rudy Giuliani uh, was convinced of all sorts of conspiracy theories in Ukraine. It looks like the White House is preparing in their strategy to throw Giuliani under the bus uh, and blame Giuliani for this stuff. In fact, there are a number of people in the White House who say, um, the president was doing things at Rudy Giuliani's direction, uh, Giuliani claiming it was necessary, uh, and we're probably going to see more of this. Now, we'll get into more of the, the I want to let the story play out a little bit over the next hour or so uh, as we find out more about what Sunland intends to say. And I want to read you this. This is a Twitter thread. Uh, Maji Nawaz, he is a reporter in London, and he tr is trying to explain the situation in Syria in a way for Americans to understand it in particular because so many Americans are at this point in corners. So you're either in the president's corner or you're in the whatever the opposite of the president's corner would be uh, without any recognition of what's actually going on there because the president actually has some points that are right. I think he has some points that are wrong as well. Uh, and same with the other side. They've got some right, some wrong. So let, let me just read this for you. After ISIS's defeat, uh, the Kurdish YPG, which is the, the communist Kurdish branch, allied with Syrian Arabs as SDF, and they set up an autonomous safe zone in northern Syria. Um, the YPG is a legal offshoot of the terrorist group PKK. Turkey has been dealing with PKK terrorism inside Turkey for many years. Turkey feared that an autonomous Kurdish zone at her border with Syria would stoke Kurdish separatism domestically. Turkey has been hosting 2 million Syrian refugees. 
Since a failed coup attempt and his spat uh, with the U.S.-based Sufi cleric uh, Fethullah Gulen, who, by the way, Rudy Giuliani was lobbying to have extradited back to Turkey, the pro-Islamist er, um, Erdogan domestic ratings and Islamic appeal have been slipping. Erdogan is the president of Turkey. He is strongly Islamist. You will remember that uh, Ataturk uh, converted Turkey from the Ottoman Empire into a secular Islamic republic. Uh, the Turks for decades insisted, above all else, everybody had to be secular. Uh, they viewed uh, deep Islamic religion within the Turkish society as anathema to being a Western society. They wanted to be Western. Uh, Erdogan, during economic turmoil, was elected and convinced Turkey uh, that it needed to be more Islamist. He is very much pro-Islamist, has emboldened uh, more uh, ties into the Islamic faith in the country, uh, even pushing out people in the military who Turkey had had a series of coups over time, pushing out leaders that were considered too religious. He was able to push out military leaders before they could push him out. Well, Erdogan's domestic ratings uh, have tanked. The appeal to Islam is tanking. There's been a resurgent secularism in Turkey. Its candidate named Ekrem uh, uh, took the president of Turkey's home base of Istanbul. Turkey's economy is flailing. She's lost American support because uh, Erdogan has had a military deal with Russia. He's lost Saudi support because of uh, how Turkey leaked a lot of the information on the Khashoggi murder. He, he's lost Syrian support uh, because of jihadists against Assad. He's lost goodwill. Turkey has very few allies left, so Erdogan's desperate to fix his woes. Turkey's policy is very similar to, and this is important, it's very similar to Barack Obama's policy in that it's been desperate to extricate U.S. troops out of foreign conflicts with Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, regardless of the wisdom. Uh, Turkey's policy has been to uh, deal with some of these problems at its border, regardless of the wisdom. The similarity makes the left's current attacks on Trump over the Curtis issue hypocritical. Joining foreign wars is unpredictable, and this is where we need to get into this. Joining foreign wars is unpredictable and can descend into folly. But once in, the hasty withdrawal of troops creates more chaos. It's how ISIS emerged in Mosul. It's what would have been behind a Taliban resurgence in Afghanistan had President Trump not stopped the withdrawal at the last hour. Erdogan was requesting that Donald Trump let him invade and occupy northern Syria to achieve the following objectives. One, destroy any chance of a free Kurdistan at his border. Two, create a buffer zone in Syria, then move the two million Syrian refugees from Turkey into that buffer zone because it's illegal under international law to send them back into conflict zones. President Trump, unpredictably and astonishingly, agreed to the Turkish request and withdrew U.S. troops from northern Syria, leaving a power vacuum that exposed our Kurdish allies to a Turkish invasion, coupled with the breakout from the ISIS detention facility of all the jihadists. This caused the Kurds, betrayed and now under aerial and ground attack, plus executions from Turkey, uh, to appeal to Basar al-Assad. Uh, the Syrian tyrant, uh, to march back into northern Syria with his troops in order to fend off a Turkish invasion. Vladimir Putin has backed Basar al-Assad, gaining favor with the Syrians and the Kurds. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is sanctioning Turkey, but he's losing the Kurds in the process because we've betrayed them. So, to review, the United States has lost allies, Turkey has lost allies, 
And the Russian sphere of influence is now extending to Iran and by extension, Iraq, Libya, and Yemen. It extends to Syria. It extends now to the Kurdish group in northern Syria. And he's already, Vladimir Putin has already established deals with Turkey that's put Turkey on the outs with NATO. Putin is now seen more reliably as a power broker and deal maker in the Middle East than the United States. Turkey has marched into abandoned U.S. air bases in Syria. The world is upset with Donald Trump's um, erratic behavior. The Kurdish feel betrayed. This is all a big win for Vladimir Putin. It's a major loss for NATO, the EU, the United States, and Western influence. Now, why does this matter? And, and this is actually very, very interesting. Russia has gained a foothold in various rogue regimes in the world that work against American interests, Syria and Iran in particular. They sponsor global terrorism. They hate Israel, and they despise the West. And under Russian influence, these territories could become bases for hostile planning against energy interests. The planning could include more Iranian-backed strikes against Saudi oil facilities, more Iranian disruption of shipping routes, Hezbollah terrorist financing and attacks against Israel and her allies, jihadist attacks on Western energy interests, controlling Syrian reconstruction contracts in energy, pushing Saudi Arabia and Iraq into the Russian sphere on favorable energy terms due to fear of Trump's unreliable friendship, uh, could help Putin. To appease the populist right and the hypocritical populist far left, the U.S. is distracted by visions of isolationism. The U.K. is distracted by isolationism. NATO is in jeopardy, and Putin is spreading out throughout the Middle East. Putin doesn't have term limits. He doesn't have democratic accountability. So the longevity has been his greatest asset. He's used it to fund and support opposing political trends. He's backed far-left groups. He's backed far-right groups. He's backed Islamist groups. He's backed anti-Islamist groups, all to seed chaos. Because by backing populism and nationalism and leftism and the East and the West, he allows unions to break up. The EU is collapsing. The UK is now dividing. Scotland wants another vote on independence. Uh, the Spanish want votes on independence. And you can step into the power vacuum and reorder the chaos because the U.S. and the EU are distracted. Chaos suits those not holding power. Chaos hurts those who hold power. For Putin to be able to step into the U.S.'s shoes as the world's main broker, he needs to upend the status quo by seeding chaos that he can actually control the chaos and step in and bring order to it. Everything that's going on in Syria right now, everything that's going on in northern Syria, all ties into Russia trying to reorder uh, the Western Hemisphere for Russia's interest. You do have to remember, now I'm, I'm not reading the Twitter thread anymore. I'm, I'm talking off the top of my head, uh, for better or for worse. <laughs> um, the, the Russians uh, never really got over the Cold War. Uh, there have long been people who have thought, you know, the Soviet Union never really went away. It just changed its name and gave up some territory, and it does want that territory back. You've seen Putin, for example, push back into Crimea because he wants the uh, port at the Red Sea or the, the um, Baltic Sea. Uh, he wants an outlet into the Mediterranean. You see him in Syria because he wants an outlet to the Mediterranean. You see him in Iran because he'd like to set up shop in the Persian Gulf. Uh, you see him now pushing back into former Soviet territories like Georgia and, and Uzbekistan and elsewhere, setting up shop there. Uh, he's trying to put back together the Soviet Union under a greater Russian um, imperial banner. 
He is doing so by sowing chaos and making the United States and, and particularly Great Britain look at all this and say, Ugh, you know what, we might as well go home and, and dabble in stuff that's more to our strength and stay off the world stage. And you have all these people now in this country saying endless war, endless war. We need to end the endless war by bringing people home. And what people are missing in all of this is that our troops are stationed around the world to keep a war from breaking out. So what Putin is doing to a degree is he's trying to destabilize regions of the world where America has a military presence so that American foreign policy interests say, oh, it's destabilizing. We might as well pull our troops out as opposed to trying to find a way to stabilize it. Because in this country as well, through a lot of voices in the media and a lot of voices already sympathetic to him, uh, we're seeing this push for renewed American isolationism. And the renewed American isolationism is pulling us out of the world, allowing the Russians and the Chinese to move back in. By the way, did you know that the Chinese are pushing into the Solomon Islands? They're actually giving very low interest loans with very weird terms to areas of the Solomon Islands. The Solomon Islands, uh, Guadalcanal and the like uh, in that area, that's you've got to take over that territory and able to isolate Australia. And the Chinese are beginning to build a military presence in that area to isolate the Australians from Western supply chains. None of this looks good when you look at it at the macro scale. We have China and Russia together spreading out around the world. And the United States completely distracted from within. Doesn't end well. Uh, it doesn't end well for any of us if we don't stand up and get reorganized. But in the meantime, the president is so focused on owning the left, so to speak, here in this country. Uh, and he also does kind of like strongman. I think we can all admit this. We're just talking inside the house. Uh, he, he looks at these strong leaders like Putin and Erdogan and, and Xi and China and the like and, and thinks, man, they're they're strong dudes. We, we, should, we should be friends with them. And they don't actually want to be friends with us. And this is kind of a problem. And the problem is that this president, under our constitutional system at best, will have eight years in office. And it will be the presidents after him who have to deal with this realignment that's happening in the world that doesn't have to happen if we don't want it to happen. And yet we're letting it happen. Yes, as The Voice said, text RECIPE to 33777. I, I will send out the chocolate chip cookie recipe uh, later today, uh, shortly after noon. Uh, there's one uh, strange ingredient. It, well, it's not really a strange ingredient. You can get it at any craft store like Michael's or um, uh, Joanne's or Hobby Lobby. It's, it's the Wilton um, uh, glucose syrup. Uh, you can use corn syrup, but uh, the glucose syrup works better. But you don't have to use it. You, it so uh, if you didn't tune in yesterday, so I, I spent my weekend, my vacation, uh, tinkering with a chocolate chip cookie recipe that doesn't get all brittle, stale, and crumbly after 24 hours. And it was a really good chocolate chip. I mean, it was it was a good chocolate chip cookie. Um, I, I got to tell you, it's 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 solid. Um, and so I will send out the recipe. So it has what makes it unique is so instead of using I, I did use some semi sweet chocolate chips, just a handful of semi sweet. But then I got a milk chocolate candy bar and chopped it up and put it in. So you have shreds of chocolate, slivers of chocolate, chunks of chocolate. And then I use some cornstarch in it. And the reason you use cornstarch is because cornstarch draws in moisture. So it keeps the cookie moist longer. Then if you use the glucose syrup, it causes the outer edge to brown and get crunchy, but keeps the center of the cookie moist longer. 
I learned that. I read all up. Y'all should see my cookbook collection. So if you want the recipe, text the word recipe to 33777. Uh, and shortly after I go off air today, I will send you out the chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> <laughs> the chocolate chip cookie recipe. Um, it's quite tasty. Okay, we have other stuff uh, we need to talk about today. Uh, we do need to get into impeachment. And it, there's actually, so if you go up to Asheville, uh, my wife and I love to go up to the Asheville area. And Asheville has decided to impose a ban on hotels. New hotels. Can't build them in Asheville, North Carolina. And this is coming to parts of Georgia and South Carolina uh, and Tennessee as well. And I want to talk about that when we come back. Um, and jobs, the September jobs report for Georgia didn't look good. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, also talk to, I, I've been trading notes with a member of the uh, U.S. House this morning. Now, over some sourcing conversations I had with uh, Democratic sources this morning, the Democrats are telling me they intend to drag out impeachment beyond Thanksgiving. Mitch McConnell's been telling Republicans he expects to have it by Thanksgiving. The Democrats are telling me they don't think they're going to get through impeachment until Christmas and that they actually are going to do a formal inquiry. Uh, but what they consider themselves doing right now is a fact-finding mission. Uh, and the, so the Senate will actually have an impeachment trial, Mitch McConnell behind closed doors, telling Republican senators that they're going to have to actually have an impeachment trial. Uh, I want to talk about that as well when we come back here on the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, throughout the Southeast now, and around the world on Facebook Live this morning. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. And yeah, I, it'll, it'll drive Charlie crazy, but I'm, I'm just going to keep bragging about this because I'm actually proud of myself. Uh, I spent the weekend, I've been reading all these, whether Cook's Illustrated, Chef Steps or whatever, they do all these things where they bake everybody, every different recipe of chocolate chip cookie, and they put together the one that they say is the best. And I did that myself this weekend, and I'm I'm excited to share with you my chocolate chip cookie recipe. It is a, a long-term relationship chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> The reason I say that is because you got to wait 24 hours after you make the dough, or at least you should. Um, so normally you just make the dough, you pop it in the oven, you eat the cookie, but you got to wait. You got to wait with these, and they turn out perfect. Uh, if you want the recipe, it is text the word recipe to 33777, uh, and, and I will give that to you. I will send that. Uh, when I'm off the show, I will send the recipe. Uh, for the recipe. So now I need to talk about Asheville, North Carolina. We'll get into impeachment here in a little bit. We will, because there is news. I actually talked to a, how should I describe this person? A, a leadership source among Democrats on their thinking. Uh, they reached out to me because they were very unhappy with me. They were actually unhappy with me uh, because of my monologue yesterday on going back to Nixon. And I pointed out to you guys how uh, every Democrat... Now, it, it, the Democrats, when they controlled Congress, have consistently, going all the way back to Nixon and then the Republicans with Bill Clinton and thereafter, 
have always had a formal impeachment inquiry vote before moving into an inquiry where they draft articles of impeachment. And they took issue with me in pointing that out, and they reached out this morning and had a very interesting conversation, and then a follow-up with a uh, ranking Republican in Congress, and I wanted to share that with you. But I'm very fascinated by this story out of Asheville, North Carolina, Uh, And it's actually an old story, and I only saw it in relation to a news story uh, relating to Charleston, South Carolina, doing something similar. And there's a story that uh, Savannah may be uh, rapidly heading towards doing the same thing. At the end of September, uh, the city council, in a unanimous vote in Asheville, North Carolina, banned the construction of new hotels for up to a year. The moratorium follows years of concern, and this is from the Citizen Times. Uh, the, the the vote that happened September 24th followed years of concerns voiced by residents over the $2 billion tourism and hotel industry. The moratorium means hotels already approved for construction can be built, but no new zoning applications will be heard for up to a year as the council develops new rules around what hotel developers will have to do in order to get a building permit. City staff will use this time to work with the Urban Land Institute Charlotte on a planning process to include two community engagement sessions, analysis of the hotel industry, assessment of impact, research of best practices, and a report on best land use practices and policy recommendations for hotel development, according to the city. In not quite four years, 1,344 hotel rooms have been opened. Of the 2,761 total hotel rooms received approval, of that, approximately 39% have been approved in the Central Business District. So, now, what happened here is that tourism in Asheville has exploded. There's a huge craft beer industry uh, in Asheville. It's kind of taken root in, in North Georgia. You go through North Georgia, And there are all sorts of little uh, small craft beer breweries that are popping up now that the legislature in Georgia has changed the laws on people now being able to go in and buy beer directly from the brewery. This has been happening in Asheville for a while. Uh, You've got the the standard artsy, craftsy, uh, hippy-dippy people up there. And now there's this big explosion, of course. I've got a bunch of friends of mine in church who... They all have vacation houses in Highlands, North Carolina, where I've never been. Apparently very beautiful. Uh, But that whole area, the tourism up there is exploding. And now it's happening in places like Savannah and Charleston as well. Charleston is considering restrictions on hotels in Charleston. Uh, There was a vote in Charleston to curtail the amount of development of hotels. The Charleston Peninsula has 4,920 hotel rooms. Almost 2,600 additional rooms could be built if everything with development rights that exist uh, get built. On a recent tour of downtown, this is I'm reading from Bloomberg, on a recent tour of downtown, preservationist Christopher King points to the site of a parking lot that is destined to be a 115-room condo hotel project. Along the city's waterfront, a former Port Authority site is slated to become a 225-room luxury hotel, backed in part by the billionaire bond investor Ken Dart. Looming over downtown is a cruise ship operated by the German line TUI Cruises. Ocean liners routinely unload 3,000 tourists into the city. 
Now, the preservation group in Charleston doesn't want to thwart development, but it wants to make sure that Charleston can still function as a city. What Charleston, if you've ever been to Charleston, it, it, the way the city is shaped to some degree does cause problems in that you have tourists uh, flooding into downtown, and then that ties up traffic and, and people still working. Downtown Charleston is not a museum. It looks like a museum, but it's not just a museum. People flood into downtown, and the thing is happening in Asheville as well. Traffic is getting horrible because of tourists. In Savannah, we see the same thing. Man, you go to Savannah, go down there along the river, and it's just slammed with people. And by the way, why do people feel compelled to walk in the middle of the road? Get out of the way. The last time I went to Savannah, what is it, Broad Street or whatever, people were walking to the road. Get out of the road. There are sidewalks, and I realize the sidewalks are crowded, but... So a lot of these southern cities, Nashville, by the way, is also in on this. Nashville has had an explosion. Um, Nashville is a city that I actually think could use some sort of transit system. Uh, and I'm not talking light rail. Light rail is garbage and wastes money. Um, somebody needs to dig under Nashville and build some subway tunnels. Um, but it, it's causing all sorts of problems for these cities. And the way that they're responding, these are cities, particularly uh, Asheville and Charleston, have been advertising themselves for years as tourist meccas, and Savannah is starting as well. And people are responding. The advertising campaigns have been great, and people are uh, coming. And it turns out the residents of those cities really don't like all the tourists coming. You know, I was thinking about that with Blue Ridge. Uh, Blue Ridge up in, in uh, North Georgia and uh, Murphy in North Carolina was through there, what, a couple of years ago we had the eclipse. And I went up, I rented a cabin in uh, North Georgia, headed up there and um in fact what was it it was cabin rentals of georgia.com is what i use with a dash between each word uh good people good people and went up there and uh rented a cabin on the tacoa for the solar eclipse and i made a conscious decision that i was not going to leave until the next day and i'm glad i did because i decided i would go into downtown blue ridge and get something to eat after the eclipse had passed. And I couldn't get out. Uh, I mean, I was up a mountain, down a dirt road, and on the, probably five miles outside of town, and I couldn't get on the main road. There were so many people leaving. A buddy of mine had gone up to Murphy, North Carolina, to do the same thing, and he said he had to wait uh, 24 hours to get out of the place because the traffic was so bad. Uh, those areas don't necessarily have the the highway infrastructure to get people out of those areas uh, when there are massive tourist influxes. And the, the difference is that in those areas, I mean, you go up to Blue Ridge, or go up to Murphy, go, go, up to, um, go up to the Highlands in North Carolina. On weekends during the summer, there can be a lot of crowds. It's very much like going to Hilton Head. Uh, you go in on a Friday, and the road to get into Hilton Head is completely backed up uh, as people are going in there for the weekends. And... That infrastructure, to some degree, the people who live in those areas, they look at it and they say, well, this is manageable. We know, for example, on Friday, traffic's going to be a mess. And on Sunday, going the opposite direction, traffic's going to be a mess. And we, we make do. They live there. They, they get it. Uh, but you've got these little downtown developments. Like downtown Blue Ridge is just wonderful. Uh, little shops in that area. If, you've never, if you haven't been in the Blue Ridge area, you should go. Uh, great little shops, great little restaurants. 
Uh, and but the traffic is predictable. It's it's kind of like in Atlanta. It, Atlanta rush hour it gets a really bad rap, and lately it's actually been horrible because the rain after so many days of not raining came through. The roads were all greasy, and so there have been wrecks everywhere. Tractor trailers overturned. Uh, morning rush hour, evening rush hour in Atlanta has been horrible in the last week when the rain came through. But by and large, traffic in Atlanta tends to be predictable unless there's a car pile up and it backs everyone up. You know when traffic is going to be bad. I, I live in Macon. I have an office in Atlanta. I occasionally have to go up there. Now, I can do this show, be done by at noon, and get in my car by 1230 and make it to my office in Atlanta within an hour, 20 minutes if I don't have to stop. If I make that same drive at 9 in the morning, if I don't use the toll lane, it can be a two-hour drive. Uh, and it's very predictable as to when I can leave and when it happens. The problem is in places like Asheville now, in Charleston, in Savannah, in Nashville, because there are so many tourists coming in and they don't know where they're going, they all drive like DeKalb County drivers. Uh, it, traffic is very unpredictable. It's backing up. They don't have the infrastructure for it. It's becoming a real problem. Uh, Jacksonville, Florida, as a matter of fact, is beginning to have this problem. Uh, there's a story in um, one of the Jacksonville uh, news outlets that they're expanding the airport in Jacksonville. They're trying to bring in conventions and they're trying to bring in stuff. And, and one of the local complaints and problems they're having is particularly people who want to go to Amelia Island. Uh, there are basically two ways to get on and off of that island. And it's, the tourist influx is causing problems there as well. What's interesting is that a lot of these places have been advertising for the tourism. They want the tourism. They've got now the tourism. And now suddenly the locals are, wait a second, we don't want this. We don't want strangers, strangers. We don't want them. And now they're having to come to terms with years of their advertising campaigns uh, impacting them. It's just, it's a very fascinating dynamic there. Now, I want to move into a situation that's going to shape up in Georgia. Speaking of tourists coming in, uh, there's going to be a massive influx in Georgia next month because there's going to be a Democratic debate on November 20th. Uh, you had the Ohio debate. You see what the Democrats have done. They're going, they had a Democratic debate in Florida. I believe they've got one scheduled in North Carolina. Uh, they haven't had it yet. North Carolina is going to be a, a heavily contested state. Uh, they've had one in Ohio. They did one in Texas. Uh, they've got one here in now in Georgia at the end of November. There's going to be a massive influx of people. We do not yet know where they're going to do it. Um, and ironically, somewhat hilariously now, uh, multiple outlets are encouraging the Democrats to not do the Georgia debate. They want the Democrats to back out of it. Not because they're opposed to Georgia. This has nothing to do with Georgia, actually. It has nothing to do with the fetal heartbeat legislation. It's NBC. Democratic activists want the DNC to walk away from the Georgia debate because NBC is hosting it. And uh, the Ronan Farrow book has come out and documented all sorts of atrocities at NBC and MSNBC with their upper news management in essentially propping up a, a rapey lifestyle by Matt Lauer. At least that's how it's described in the book. Uh, allegedly, I guess I should say, uh, given the, the, the phraseology of the day. Uh, and uh, people are really upset with NBC. Uh, internally, women who work at NBC are livid at NBC. Uh, you had Chris Hayes on MSNBC. To his credit, Chris Hayes on MSNBC did a, a monologue the other day about standing up to NBC and, and how um, this needs to be reported. Uh, 
and good for him for doing that, biting the hand that feeds him. But uh, so they want to have a debate in Georgia. They have not yet decided where to have it in Georgia. I presume they would have it in the Atlanta area, although that's not exactly uh, for sure. My guess is that they would do it at a historically black college in the Atlanta area uh, to promote that venue in addition to everything else. Uh, But Democratic activists now want them to walk away from NBC because of the uh, Ronan Farrow allegations about how NBC covered up what Matt Lauer was doing. Uh, the various sexual scandals within NBC. They think it promotes violence against women. And in this Me Too age, it's hypocritical of the Democrats to be partnering with NBC if they have not made amends yet. Uh, So we're going to have a massive influx of people in Georgia for a Democratic debate and protesters coming as well to protest not the Democrats, not fetal heartbeat, not anything that happened in Georgia. But protesting NBC, the, the, the progressive activist crowd turns on itself and eats its own every time. And in this case, they actually have some justification for doing so. All right. Uh, can we laugh at the Democrats together for just a moment? I mean, listen, I, 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 this situation will eventually happen to Republicans. Um, but there's a problem. The Democrats have, uh, they're running into it in Georgia, they're running into it in North Carolina, they're running into it in Arizona, they're even running into it in places like Texas. Uh, But Georgia in particular is kind of a hotbed of this situation where there's not enough money to go around. They're having fundraising problems. Uh, So you've got David Perdue in Georgia has $6.3 million cash on hand. And uh, you got a bunch of Democrats, uh, three right now at least, uh, no, 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 four now, four against David Perdue, and they're having a hard time raising money. John Ossoff has done best. He tapped into his fundraising, uh, also moved some money over that was sitting in a bank account from his prior campaign, so he's got over a million cash on hand. Poor old Teresa Tomlinson, she's only got about $200,000 cash on hand, uh, even though she's raised close to a million dollars. She's got such a high burn rate trying to build her name ID, and she's the one so many Democrats were rallying around. You've got the situation in North Carolina as well. Tom Tillis is the Republican on the ballot, and he's not a highly popular Republican, you should know. Uh, He was an establishment guy, uh, didn't particularly care for the president. Trump voters don't particularly like him. Uh, He started sounding uh, much more like a, a Trumpy candidate to try to lure them back but they're not happy with him. He may get a primary. The Trump campaign is trying to intercede to, to keep people out of the race now because they can't risk his seat. Uh, you've got, oh, uh, what what was his name? Um, Lieutenant Governor candidate. Uh, yeah, Cal Cunningham uh, decided he's going to run for the Senate instead of running for Lieutenant Governor there, but there are already several other people in the race, and they're all having fundraising trouble. We're seeing this in Arizona as well with the Martha McSally seat uh, where she replaced John McCain. She'll be on the ballot. And they're having trouble there as well. Now, contrast that with Alabama. Um, In Alabama, you've got so many Republicans running because Doug Jones is so deeply vulnerable that it's Alabama Republicans who are having trouble fundraising. I'm supporting Arnold Mooney over there. He's the father of a friend of mine. We named him at the Resurgent Gathering. He's a great guy, but they've got, oh, whatchamadiggy, the Auburn coach on principle. I'm not sure that I could support somebody who coached at Auburn running, but uh, he's running. He's getting some traction, but they're all having fundraising problems. The fields are so crowded in races like this where, where people sense some vulnerability and they can't raise money. 
The other problem that Georgia has is you've got two races. You've got the Isaacson seat and you've got the Purdue seat. And Democrats aren't sure who to support. There's been no clear field. The only thing Democrats can agree on in Georgia is that they are livid over Matt Lieberman running. Uh, Matt Lieberman, son of John Lieberman, or Joe Lieberman, rather, uh, the former Connecticut senator. His son lives in Georgia, is very progressive. And I got to tell you, he's running an ad, uh, and he's running it in the metro Atlanta area. He is running it. It's a knock on uh, Brian Kemp's Jake ad. I, and I realize I mentioned this, but I, I, I didn't actually watch the ad to the end. I saw the beginning of the ad, and he's got the, the, the daughter's boyfriend, and he's he's got a gun, and it's a fake gun. Now, at the end of the ad, he says he doesn't even own a gun. Why would you want to do that and tell people, hey, there's no gun in my house if you break it? I, why on earth would you do that? He says he doesn't own a gun. I, and listen, no, I, I didn't own a gun until we had protesters show up at our house a couple of years ago, and I figured I needed to to start stockpiling weapons and ammunition. I, I mean, our house looks like one of those militia people's houses. we got so many guns and ammo now. <laughs> but I, I just, why do you want to advertise that? Um, I, I, I have no idea. And can you get elected in Georgia and not own a gun or brag about not owning a gun? I really think that the Democrats are overplaying their hand on this gun stuff. Uh, Beto O'Rourke is not helping them. By the way, there was an undercover video. Somebody approached Beto right after the debate uh, the other day, put a camera in his face, and he said he wasn't going to confiscate people's guns. And then he went right on TV and started talking about how the police are going to show up on your doorstep to, to take your guns. And the Democrats are livid with him, genuinely livid with him. Uh, and the fallout continues from the Democratic debate. Uh, you've got Pete Buttigieg going on TV saying Elizabeth Warren is more concerned with selfies than how she's going to pay for her health care plan. Warren is walking that back now. Elizabeth Warren is now saying she will find other resources to pay for her Medicare for All plan, but she still does not want to concede that the middle class taxes are going to go up. Not going to be useful. Um, we'll get into that, uh, the, the continued fallout from the Democratic debate when we come back. But also, uh, unemployment in Georgia is on the rise. There are some details you need to know about this. And there's a billion-dollar casino plan afoot for the Southeast. I'll tell you about that when we come back. Uh, you're definitely going to want to um, be here later if you can. Uh, on the impeachment stuff, uh, there is some news I want to get to, but I have I have put off the story for so many days, and I it is deeply relevant. Uh, the bulk of my audience, and you'll just have to forgive me, uh, it is in the southeast, uh, wherever you're listening, and, and there's a story out of Georgia that I, I've pushed. I've, I keep kicking the can down the road, and, and I really do need to get to it. Um, there is uh, in North Carolina. Yeah, it's a story about Georgia, and I'm beginning in, in North Carolina, and, and there's a reason for this. Um, there is in North Carolina a city called Cherokee, North Carolina. Um, and in Cherokee, North Carolina, just on the outskirts, there is a Harrah's Casino and Resort. Uh, the Cherokee Casino and Resort. And if you're in even the metro Atlanta area, there are billboards all over the place for this casino. 
and people will make the long trek up to Cherokee, North Carolina to go to the casino. I have never been. Uh, I, I l- Listen, I will not be here in a couple of weeks. Um, I will not be here. There will be a Monday where I am not here. And the reason I will not be here is because I am taking a guy's trip to Vegas. Uh, yeah, yeah, some buddies of mine and I, we just, we all kind of need a break. And we just decided that we're going to go to Las Vegas for a weekend and we're going to carry over to a Monday. We'll come back on a Monday. Uh, so I will, I will miss a day in the office and, uh, we're, we're excited. We're, we're probably more excited about it than we should. And I don't even gamble. Um, but uh, the question was, where should we go? We could go to Denver, uh, or we could go to, uh, Montana, you go somewhere where it's cold and snowy, go to Yellowstone or something like that. And I just thought, you know, we can, there's all, there's all sorts of stuff that we could do in Vegas. Uh, let's go to Vegas. Uh, one of the, the sayings about Vegas is that Las Vegas is in a desert for a reason. You know, the motto there of, of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Uh, not necessarily true, uh, but, uh, it, it has become for a while there. Las Vegas went through this branding campaign where they wanted to be family friendly. And in, in fact, there's an Avengers exhibit t- terribly overpriced and, and not very good. Don't waste your money if you ever go to Las Vegas, but if you take your kids, you could take them to the Avengers thing. I don't recommend it though. Um, there are, there's all sorts of entertainment for kids, but, 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 but it has over the last, uh, probably five years or so gotten away from that again and really tried to embrace hedonism in Las Vegas. Now that's not why I'm going again. I, I, I don't gamble. Um, I, I can sit at the table and, and as a buddy of mine said, don't you play 21? I said, yeah, I know how to play it. He says, well, then you can play blackjack, sit at the table and just drink. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so, so maybe I will, but I, I'm not a huge advocate of casinos outside of Las Vegas. And the reason I'm not is because there have been a massive number of academic and, um, governmental studies over the years that show areas that have casinos tend to have increases in bankruptcy and domestic violence and human trafficking and drug use and alcohol dependency and a a host of social ills tend to come with casinos. Also, what tends to happen, and North Carolina has has discovered this, and and, uh, states with lotteries discover this, uh, certainly Missouri and Louisiana and, and Massachusetts and Maryland have discovered this with their casinos, that you, what you tend to have happen is you build casinos to help prop up your education lottery fund, and it doesn't quite work that way because even the states lose when they bet against the house. And the casinos have a way of, of structuring their books to make sure you're never going to make the money that you intend, that you think you're going to make. But this brings me back to Cherokee. Because uh, the casino in Cherokee advertises all over the metro Atlanta area and and the north metro Atlanta area and lures people up to Cherokee. And a lot of those north Atlanta uh, legislators see these billboards and they think, well, why are they going there when we can have this here? Well, now the people who own the uh, Atlanta Motor Speedway are floating a billion-dollar casino plan. A billion-dollar casino plan. Uh, which is amazing to me that they want to spend that much money. 
but they do. Um, this is from uh, the Atlanta Business Chronicle. The Atlanta Motor Speedway uh, wants to be on board if Georgia legalizes casino gambling. The president and general manager, Ed Clark, outlined a proposal Tuesday to build a billion-dollar casino resort adjacent to the racetrack south of Atlanta that would feature a hotel, timeshare condominiums, meeting space, shops and restaurants, and possibly a theme park, concert venue, movie theater, and nightclub. We want to create something that would bring people of all ages for multi-night stays, he told a Georgia House committee that's looking into gambling. Notice they say gaming. They don't say gambling, uh, but it's gambling. Now, if you wanted to expand gambling or gaming in Georgia, it would take a two-thirds vote of both houses of the legislature and a majority vote of the people to amend the state constitution to allow it. I... I am I'm opposed because of all the socialists, but I got to tell you, um, when you look at the the complex that was built by MGM outside of Washington D.C. and some of the other places that have been built, I, I think it can be done tastefully. But there's one caveat there. We're seeing uh, in the Atlanta area, uh, in the Blue Ridge area, in the Rome area. And in the uh, Athens area and also in the Savannah area now, uh, entertainment venues and restaurants are starting to pay attention to the casino um, bids. Because one of the things that you see in communities that build these casinos, depending on how they're placed and where they're placed, is local restaurants and um, music venues collapse. So, for example, um, the if you're familiar with the Fox Theater in Atlanta or you're familiar with uh, Chastain Park, uh, the Verizon Amphitheater, uh, venues like that suffer. And the reason is because originally in Georgia, the legislation that would have authorized a casino in Georgia would have required a certain percentage, uh, about 50%, I think, under the legislation, would have required 50% of the, the money to the casino come via concerts. And the casinos tend to pay more to concert to, to performances to come to their venue. Uh, that then helps them generate the money for their venue. They essentially are subsidizing tickets. They're using proceeds from gambling to pay higher rates to the musicians who come. And then that causes local venues to suffer and, and oftentimes collapse. In fact, the first two businesses that typically go out of business when a, a casino complex comes in are local restaurants and local music venues. So um, the, the Tabernacle in Atlanta uh, Center Stage in Atlanta, the Fox in Atlanta, the Verizon Amphitheater in Atlanta, and then a host of local restaurants would be the ones impacted. Uh, same, there have been proposals floated uh, in the Rome area and the Savannah area, particularly Savannah in, in Athens, though. Um, it, not, a, not Athens, I'm sorry, Atlanta and Savannah because of airport infrastructure to put a casino in one of those places. And the same thing in Savannah is an issue. The downtown restaurant community would suffer. They were thinking of building a, a complex, you know, what, Hutchinson Island. They've got the a convention center and the Westin out there on that island. People were thinking about putting a casino there. There was a plan floated for that. And the restaurants uh, along the riverfront were all opposed to it because they knew what would happen. And the same holds true in the Atlanta area and elsewhere. Uh, even in the Athens area, the music venues in Athens would suffer if that's where they put a casino casino. So they're trying to raise this red flag to these Atlanta legislators who are jealous of the casino in North Carolina, who want to bring a casino into Georgia. 
And they're trying to point out if you do this, you've got to structure it so that you don't hurt local businesses. One of the biggest complaints I have about Republicans in the state of Georgia, and you see this in other states as well, but Georgia is really, really bad about it, is that the Republicans tend to prioritize attracting business from other states as opposed to helping their existing businesses. So, for example, the state of Georgia is willing to give massive tax breaks to lure a Mercedes, a Porsche, a, um, a, a, a another major automobile company, insurance company, or other uh, Fortune 500 company into Georgia, and they would never give an existing Georgia business money to grow. So what you find is that Georgia businesses often view the state legislature and the governor's office in Georgia as focusing on these out-of-state businesses at the expense of in-state businesses. Brian Kemp has changed that to some degree. Brian Kemp is very, very focused in Georgia on the local businesses and on trying to help the local businesses. There's a story out today that the September jobs rate in Georgia has gone down. There's been a decline of about 2,100 jobs. They do not think it's a pattern. Uh, 446 jobs are going to be cut from Gulfstream. Uh, those jobs, some of them are going to come from the Savannah area. They're going to be administrative jobs, not technical technical jobs, uh, but to some degree, they're going to be offset by Ball Corporation. Ball Corporation is is expanding a facility in Rome and will add over 100 jobs making aluminum cups in the Rome area. But overall, the September trend has been down 2,100 jobs. They, the State Department of, of um, Economic, uh, what is it? Good gracious, I'm sorry, brain fart here. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the Labor Commissioner, um, the, the labor commission, the, the, their economic commission within the labor commission says they don't think this is part of a trend. Uh, they think it's an, an isolated jobs decline for September. But if you bring in a casino in Georgia, you're going to, if you don't structure it right, see more job declines. That's happened, frankly, in the D.C. area, in the Boston area, in the Baltimore area, and in Missouri, in the Illinois area where they brought in casinos because they didn't do it thoughtfully. What they didn't do was think about local music venues and local restaurants. So when you see this economic decline number in Georgia and legislators start getting antsy and they're, they're flirting with a billion-dollar deal, at least that's what's being flirted. And by the way, does anyone really believe it would be a billion-dollar deal? I, I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, they're, they're floating this grand and glorious idea, but I just don't see a billion-dollar casino event space with, with theme park sort of thing at the Atlanta Motor Speedway being a viable long-term option. I mean, it, it would. I mean, I don't want to disparage the thing, but it would also it would take business if the state did this. It would take business from Six Flags. Six Flags is is every once in a while on shaky financial ground already. Uh, you could uh, attract business away from the Metro Atlanta core that is already on shaky ground. It's a dangerous game the legislature's playing, and and the reason they're playing it is because they want more revenue to prop up the Hope Scholarship. They're trying to find creative ways to prop up Hope. But, you know, they don't have to look far. Uh, look at their lottery revenue, which is on decline. Look at Louisiana or Massachusetts or Maryland or some of these other places that have put in casinos. And the whole purpose they did, it, look along the Mississippi River. Uh, the Mississippi River is littered with um, riverboats, casinos that were put there by various states to prop up their state uh, education scholarship funds. 
and none of them had the deliverables. It's just he eats, you know, Kasim Reed and I, Kasim Reed was the mayor of Atlanta. He and I disagreed on everything. In fact, he blocked me on Twitter. But um, Reed actually said uh, that states that bring in casinos are states that have given up on everything else. And that's kind of where we are with our state Republicans. They, they want something big and new. They have no new ideas, and so they want to go to some of these ideas. And again, I'm not opposed to casinos. I'm going to Las Vegas in a couple of weeks. I'm not opposed to casinos. Uh, but these guys, they tend to do these sorts of things, and they, they, they see dollar signs, and they don't see consequences. At least local restaurants and uh, local hoteliers and local uh, music venues are stepping up and pointing out, guys, you're going to hurt our businesses if you do this. And I don't know that the Republicans in the legislature care, honestly. They bring this idea up every year in the legislature, and it has died every year. But they bring it up every year because they think they can whittle away a few more uh, votes every year to try to get to a two-thirds majority. There's an alternative plan that they should probably consider, though. And it is one that probably would not require amending the Constitution. And that would be to allow sports betting which is different from the organized games of chance uh, legally, the way it's structured in a lot of other states that have similar constitutional prohibitions. Those states have gotten around it uh, with legislative language that allows for uh, people to go to an area. For example, you could do it at uh, SunTrust Park or at Mercedes-Benz. You could do it even at Sanford Stadium if you wanted to in Athens and have a designated area where people go to bet on sports games that aren't technically games of chance, are they? That, that's where they get around this, is the game that you're actually betting, making you get a bet on isn't a game of chance. It's a game of skill and talent. And so they get around uh, the, the games of chance. Um, at least that's been part of the legal argument to get around in other states. I assume it would fly with the Georgia Supreme Court as well. Uh, but I'm kind of okay with the sports betting because I, I view it completely differently as building a multi-million dollar or a billion dollar facility uh, where people could go uh, that would then divert their cash from uh, music venues and local restaurants in the area. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is you've got people who are in the stadium, in the Brave Stadium, placing bets on the game on their cell phone. Might as well give them a, a unique experience at the park where they can go do what they're already doing, but the state can make some money off of it, as opposed to building a multi-million dollar casino that's going to take business away from entertainment venues, restaurants, local shops, and things like that. It, it That makes sense to me. That seems like it's the perfect compromise. But of course... Members of the Georgia legislature see dollar signs, they see glitz and fame, and they also see a way to compete against North Carolina's Cherokee Casino facility by building something in Georgia to keep Georgians spending their money in Georgia. But as I have said, they'll be betting against the House, and when they tell these casinos that certain percentages of money have to go to the state, well, you can be sure that they're going to be generating a lot less money than you think they're going to generate. And by the way, this is an issue that uh, conservative activists are going to mobilize against. And so you will have conservative activists in an election year, no less, in 2020, mobilizing against Republicans in the legislature. That they, they might not want to do this next year, might not want to do it next year, but we'll see. You can call in if you like. We're happy to take phone calls here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Eight 
Jody Heiss, uh, the congressman from here in Georgia, uh, has been able to get a bipartisan measure through the House of Representatives that apparently has enough support to be able to get through the Senate. I, I bring this up because Jody Heiss, uh, who represents the Atlanta or the Athens area in the uh, U.S. Congress, is routinely attacked by establishment Republicans for being unable to get anything accomplished because he's such a winger. Uh, actually, a very dear friend, I, I think the world of Jody Heiss. I, I think he's highly effective as a member of the House Freedom Caucus, uh, telling his own party no. It's it's one of the things that I think we need. There are not enough Republicans in Congress to tell people no. Mark Meadows, uh, Jody Heiss, and the rest of the House Freedom Caucus spend a lot of time telling their own leadership no, uh, particularly on fiscal issues. They've even they have a reputation of being the president's apologists in Congress, and they are the Republicans who have over the last three years been the ones to stand up and pr- tell the president no on spending. Uh, they're good people, and so Heiss has legislation that has passed the House with bipartisan support that will restrict the amount of money retired presidents and first ladies get. Uh, Heiss, for a number of years, has made this one of his causes. Uh, Elijah Cumming uh, passed away overnight. He's the Democratic chairman of the House Government Oversight Committee. He represents uh, the portion of Maryland around the District of Columbia. And Elijah Cumming actually helped Jody Heiss get this measure through the House Government Oversight Committee and get bipartisan support for it. Heiss's concern for a number of years, he's talked about it on this program, is that when presidents retire, the government gives them a massive fat pension, and when they die, the government gives their, their widow a massive annuity. And... It used to be the case that presidents retired, went into private uh, service to the the country, worked with nonprofits, and you never saw them again. Or they built uh, fellowships and and peace institutes and things like that. Uh, Gerald Ford, you never saw Gerald Ford after he retired. Uh, Ronald Reagan, you rarely saw him even before the Alzheimer's diagnosis. Ronald Reagan didn't want to be in George Bush or Bill Clinton's shadow. Uh, Bill Clinton, uh, to some degree, kind of kind of changed things. Uh, was aggressively out there for Democratic candidates. You didn't see George H. W. Bush out there, and you you never saw Jimmy Carter unless he was at Habitat for Humanity. But nowadays, uh, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, they all bought mansions after they left. They make millions for giving speeches. They sit on corporate boards. They fly on private planes. Uh, Carter and Truman are the only two presidents. I. I, I I want to say you got to go from Carter back to Truman to find presidents who returned to the homes they lived in before becoming president. Yeah, Jimmy Carter is the last president to move back to the house that he lived in before becoming president. And frankly, he's never left. Uh, Harry Truman was the last president before him. Um, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama— they all moved into different houses. Now, Reagan's wasn't uh, was down the street from his old house, uh, and he had to do it because of security concerns. But uh, Bush um, got a big house. Uh, Clinton got a big house. Obama now lives in D.C., never even went back to Illinois. So Jody Heiss has said, you know what? We, we need to do something about this. Uh, we need to stop paying them a bunch of money after they retire. They're celebrities now. We treat retired presidents as celebrities. They can operate as celebrities, and they can make money as celebrities. And so he's been pushing this legislation for a number of years. And notable, the Republicans, even when Obama was president, didn't push this legislation through. 
It took Elijah Cumming and the Democrats to give him the support to push the legislation through. The president, by the way, supports the legislation. The president already gives up his paycheck to charity, never gets credit for it, by the way. The president gives his money to charity, gives his paycheck to charity every month. Um, the president's perfectly happy to sign this legislation. So good for Jody Heiss for doing this and good for the Democrats being willing to help him when the establishment Republicans didn't even want to give Heiss credit for the legislation. Pathetic. When we come back, an impeachment update. I've been talking to some Republicans and Democrats. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. Welcome. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Y'all, we need to talk a little bit about impeachment, and, and we need to circle back to the Turkish situation. Uh, after the president of Turkey said he would not take a meeting with Vice President Pence, he is, in fact, taking a meeting with Vice President Pence. We have this the letter from the president to the Turkish president that the Turkish president apparently threw in the trash, the media is pointing out today, and, and a bunch of other stuff. But I, I want to tell you, so I, I mentioned on the program all of the impeachments where both Democrats and Republicans alike have had uh, resolutions to begin an inquiry of the of impeachment. The, they began with Richard Nixon doing this. So with Richard Nixon, there was a resolution that was passed by the Congress, uh, by the House Representatives, that was sent to the Judiciary Committee to begin a formal inquiry of impeachment. Now, they did this after a fact-finding mission. What the Democrats did with the Nixon administration was behind the scenes, they had a series of, of investigatory committees and review sessions where they asked questions of people to develop a factual basis to then say, yes, there's enough evidence, let's begin an impeachment inquiry. Uh, so they began the impeachment inquiry and began drafting articles of impeachment. Richard Nixon resigned uh, before those articles were passed by the House of Representatives. He was not actually impeached, uh, contrary to what some have claimed now. All that being said, uh, after Richard Nixon's uh, non-impeachment, but the, the beginning of it, the House moved to impeach Walter Nixon. Walter Nixon, no relation to Richard, was a federal judge. And again, they used a resolution to begin an impeachment inquiry. They did the same thing with Alcee Hastings in the late 1980s. Alcee Hastings, who went on to become a congressman because the Senate convicted him in impeachment but did not bar him from holding federal office, um, they they impeached Alcee Hastings, and they did it with an, a formal vote to begin an inquiry. The same with Judge Samuel Kent, the same with Judge Thomas Porteous, the same with Bill Clinton. Time and time again, what the Democrats did is they passed a formal resolution to begin an impeachment inquiry. Now, I pointed that out on this here program, and some Democrats uh, got really upset with me and thought I was misrepresenting what was happening, and, and they wanted to set the record straight. So I talked to them the, before the show today. Uh, and then I, I traded, well, I, I can tell you, Doug Collins reached out to me um, and uh, some other Republicans as well pushing back. I, I put out a, a series of tweets on what these Democrats told me, or this Democrat told me. Uh, and what the Democrats said is that like with the Nixon inquiry, they're doing preliminary fact finding. They're going behind closed doors and they're conducting interviews with people. And based on the interviews with people, they are thereafter 
probably going to have a formal vote of impeachment. Now, Mitch McConnell had been telling senators to expect it by Thanksgiving. The Democrats are saying Christmas, that they probably won't have this stuff wrapped up by Christmas. That would throw the trial into the Senate in January. And there is new news on that front keeping you up to date on all the latest. Senator Mitch McConnell, behind closed doors, has told senators, based on his review of Senate precedent, his consultation with the Senate parliamentarian, and his own review of the Senate rules, there will be no way to avoid having an impeachment trial. And if they have an impeachment trial... John Roberts, Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, will be in charge of that trial, taking the Senate procedure out of the hands of the senators and placing it in the hands of Roberts. And senators don't like that. Republican senators don't like that. But what McConnell concluded is that if they were to have a vote to dismiss, they could not get the Democrats to go along with it. Uh, You could not get Democrats to allow a vote. Democrats would be able to filibuster the initial motion to dismiss. And under the Senate rules, if they can't dismiss an impeachment, they have to have a trial on the impeachment. So there would be a Senate trial on impeachment. Now, this is coming to head today because of Gordon Sundland. Gordon Sundland uh, is going to testify before the House of Representatives on the situation, on what he knew, uh, and it looks like he's going to throw Rudy Giuliani under the bus. Um, His statements, let's see, this is from the Politico. This has come up in the last, uh, when did this post? This posted at 10.03 a.m. this morning. Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, broke sharply from President Trump. Uh, telling House impeachment investigators he opposed the president's request to run Ukraine policy through his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. We were also disappointed by the president's direction that we involve Mr. Giuliani, Sunland told congressional investigators according to his opening statement. Sunland said he contacted Giuliani anyway at Trump's direction and that Giuliani drew a direct link between scheduling a White House visit for Ukraine's newly elected president and demands that Ukraine prioritize an investigation into former Vice President Joe Biden, as well as one connected to the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Mr. Giuliani specifically mentioned the 2016 election, including the Democratic National Committee server, and Burisma as two anti-corruption investigatory topics of importance for the president, Sunland said. Sunland added he did not realize until much later that Giuliani was seeking a Ukrainian-led investigation into Biden and his son. He said any effort to solicit foreign assistance in any American election, an allegation central to the House inquiry, would be wrong. He also said military assistance to Ukraine, quote, should not have been delayed for any reason. He added the president repeatedly told him there was no quid pro quo. Sunland's testimony has the potential to be the most devastating yet. This is all the spin here from Politico. Um, it, it was apparent to all of us that the key to changing the president's mind on Ukraine was Mr. Giuliani. Now, the Democrats are spinning this as it looks bad for the president. But it actually 
looks really bad for Giuliani. And we now know the Justice Department has Rudy Giuliani under a counterintelligence investigation. There is concern at the upper echelons of the American government, of Donald Trump's American government, that Rudy Giuliani has been played. Y'all, you know, I took my son to New York uh, this, this July, actually we took, I, I took him up to New York. It was a father son trip. We went up to New York for a couple of days. We went down to the, uh, we went down to Washington. We hung out in the vice president's office, uh, went over to the white house, um, had a good time with the president's staff, hung out with Kellyanne Conway. A lot of friends of mine work, work for the president. The vice president was out of town, but his staff gave Gunner, my, my 10 year old, a, just a fantastic tour of the vice president's office. They had him climbing on furniture, looking at stuff. It was great. Um, but I took him to New York first and years ago, you could not have done that when I, now I'm 44 now. Um, when I was a kid in the eighties, New York was a notorious cesspit. I, I talked in the last hour about Las Vegas being sin city. Times square was sin city in the 1980s, the crime and muggings, uh, the, the peep shows, the, the strip clubs, the adult movie theaters, all that. I mean, it was just, it, it was, it was disgusting. New York was a city falling apart. Um, it, taxi driver, uh, came out of the late seventies in New York, the vigilante mob justice. You had, what's his name on the subway? Uh, Bernie gets who who, uh, took after the guy on the subway. Uh, New York was a city falling apart. It was Rudy Giuliani who cleaned up New York City. In the mid-90s, Rudy Giuliani, who had famously been a prosecutor targeted by the mob, he had shut down many mob operations, uh, became very popular in New York City as someone willing to be tough on crime when Democrats weren't. Uh, New York City handed New York to the Republican mayor, Rudy Giuliani, put him in charge, and Rudy cleaned up the place. In fact, on 9-11, people forget 9-11 was election day in New York. And Rudy was term limited. And there was a big issue of whether or not they were going to, after 9-11, allow Rudy to run again for office. He was so popular. It was a very big deal. Rudy Giuliani was seen as the man who cleaned up corruption. He was seen as the man who put New York back together. He was seen as the man who showed New York what was actually possible. And he is going to die and go to his grave being known as the man who got Donald Trump impeached because Rudy Giuliani is an idiot now. I mean, at, at some point, you, what, what is the, the, the line from the Batman from the Dark Knight? You, you die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain? That, that's what's happening to Rudy. And I don't know that Donald Trump knows it. Donald Trump needs some friends to do an intervention with him and say, stop listening to Rudy. Rudy's going to get you impeached. Sunland, uh, let me read you this for, again from the Politico. Sunland, Gordon Sunland, the president's ambassador to the EU. Sunland, you should know, as an aside, is in hot water with Congress because he's spending millions of dollars of taxpayer money to renovate the house he lives in in Belgium. Uh, the ambassador's residence in Belgium uh, for the EU. There are two ambassador residences in Belgium. There's one for Belgium, which uh, Wakefield Place is an old mansion. 
And there's uh, the ambassador's residence for the EU, which is a nice house, um, but Sunland doesn't like it. He was a hotelier. He wants a more lavish house. He's buying handmade, hand-sewn furniture from Italy on the taxpayer dime. Crazy. Uh, Sunland could buy it himself. He's got the money. He's a hotelier. Uh, but let me let me read you this. Sunland now says he only claimed there was no quid pro quo to remember that exchange, uh, the text message exchange. He says there's no quid pro quo because Trump repeatedly assured him of it in a direct phone call. I recall the president was in a bad mood, Sunland intends to say. Sunland's going to offer a strong defense of the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine who was ousted by Trump after a campaign by Rudy Giuliani. In his opening statement, Sunland calls her an excellent diplomat with a deep understanding of Ukrainian internal dynamics, the U.S.-Ukraine relationship, and associated regional issues. Yikes. Um, okay, there are some things you need to know that are going on here with Sunland to really set the stage for this. Um, first of all, I, I'm getting a text message from a friend of mine on, on how do we know what Sunland's going to say. Sunland himself has leaked his initial remarks. Uh, the Democrats are not leaking this. This is coming from Gordon Sundland himself, who is leaking that essentially he's going to tell the, the House committee Rudy Giuliani is to blame, and the president himself said there was no quid pro quo, uh, and, and made him text it to the UN, U.S. envoy to the Ukraine. He's also going to defend the former ambassador of the President Hayes. Now, why is Sundland turning tail on this? Well, Sundland is a hotelier. He owns hotels. He owns a prestigious, ritzy hotel chain. And Democrats have been targeting that hotel company for boycotts, and progressive activists are avoiding it. It's hurting his bottom line. They're coming after him financially, and so he's squealing. But thus far, he's only squealing on Rudy. Rudy, really, honest to goodness, Rudy is the common tie here on this. Uh, uh, Rick, Rick Perry... A man who who thinks the world of the president, the president thinks the world of him. Rick Perry is telling the Wall Street Journal that he as well, uh, the president told him to talk to Rudy Giuliani about the Ukraine situation, and, and Perry wasn't comfortable doing it, but did it because the president told him and tried to tell Rudy Giuliani that, that all of his concerns about Ukraine were a bunch of nonsense. And Rudy didn't believe him. Rudy went into his meeting with, with uh, Rick Perry with preconceived notions of what other people were telling him. Now, who were the other people telling Giuliani these things? It appears that it could be the four, there are now four individuals, not just two, four people indicted by the Trump administration for trying to get a recreational marijuana license in Nevada. This whole thing, y'all, you, <laughs> you can't make this up. I mean, this is so bizarre. You, you just, you can't make it up. Now, the president is relying on Rudy, who let's let's acknowledge is getting a divorce in part because his wife hid the remote control from him. I'm not making that up. So the president outsources to his buddy Rudy, who he's known forever, and doesn't realize that Rudy is old and has lost his ever-living mind. So you have these Ukrainians who they want to build a marijuana facility in Nevada, they missed the deadline by which to do so, and so a Russian oligarch sends them a bunch of money, and they start spreading it around, and in the meantime, decide to get in the good graces of the Trump administration. 
So they reach out to Giuliani and they start spinning these elaborate tales to him about what was going on in Ukraine. And they start telling him about Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. There appears to be no there there. You should know. Despite what you may have read in some outlets or heard, it appears it all comes from these these hucksters from Ukraine who were so busy whining and dining politicians, they missed the filing deadline in Nevada. And in order to get around it, they've had to shell out massive amounts of corporate uh, contributions to politicians at the state and federal level to get deadlines changed and to pressure regulatory entities to allow them to apply after the fact. And one of those people they reached out to was Rudy Giuliani. You can't make this stuff up. And they appear to be, appear, that, that, that's key here, appear to be one of these major sources where Giuliani has gotten all the stuff. So what did Giuliani do with this information? These people were trying to appear useful to Giuliani. They gave him these stories out of Ukraine. Rudy went to the president and said, you'll never guess what I learned. The president has no idea it came from these hucksters. He hears it from Rudy, who he treats as credible. Rudy is going to get the president impeached because Rudy's nuts. Y'all, this is, I feel bad for the president in this. Uh, I mean, I really, I, I genuinely actually feel bad for the president here. He's relied on his friend Rudy and doesn't realize Rudy is an idiot because he remembers Rudy's glory days. And Rudy, meanwhile, is is listening to a bunch of hucksters from former Soviet republics who are now American citizens who were just trying to get a marijuana deal in Nevada. I, you can't script this. This is a, a soap opera episode on TV. By the way, uh, CNN reporting what one of the things that Sunland is telling the House investigators is uh, this quote from his statement. And again, it, it hasn't been leaked by Democrats. This is being leaked by Sunland himself. Uh, I do not recall any discussions with the White House on withholding U.S. security assistance from Ukraine in return for assistance with the president's 2020 reelection campaign. Um, the issue here is that Sunland he wants to throw Giuliani under the bus. He doesn't want to throw the president under the bus. He doesn't think the president really wanted this. To, he thinks Giuliani wanted it. Um, this, the, the fallout though, is just going to continue Giuliani. I, I just, I, this is the crazy. And you know, so part of the th problem with all of this is Giuliani is friends with a lot of voices within the conservative movement, uh, and they don't want to they, they don't want to be critical of their friend, and so you've got a lot of people out there who seem forced to defend Giuliani and the president together because they're friends with Rudy. And, and I let's see, I get that. I I honestly do get that. Uh, but at the same time, at some point, you're you're gonna have to do something because it's just not good. You're going to have to make Rudy Giuliani the fall guy to save the president. Now, we need to go back to uh, the situation in Turkey real quick because you got to listen to Mike Pompeo. He is meeting with the Turks today with uh, the vice president. Uh, this is playing into tensions on the Hill related to impeachment as well. And Pompeo got grilled by Maria Bartiromo and didn't do so well. You know, you heard earlier in our mon montage of, uh, of comments from people, the former prime minister of Israel, Ehud Barak, was in the studio earlier this week, and he said the winners in all of this are Russia, Assad, Iran, and ISIS. I is it your belief that Israel today is less safe as a result of this move? No. Okay. 
you don't have a date in, ter in terms of when the president would pull these troops out. Is there any reason to believe the president would change his thinking on this and leave this couple thousand troops on the ground? How many troops do we have? Yeah, my, my experience with the president is that uh, he, he makes decisions and then uh, absorbs data and facts, evaluates situations if we need to adjust our policy to achieve our goals in which um, the president always very focused on what's the objective, what is it we're really truly trying to achieve. Yeah. Uh, if, we conclude, if, we, if we conclude that we need to adjust our policy to achieve those goals, I'm confident that the team will make that recommendation that the president will move in that direction if, if he concludes it's the right thing to do to make sure that we protect America. Okay, um, didn't really want to answer all of her questions there. He's under fire from the White House this morning for not handling that exchange very well. Uh, they're not going after Maria. They're going after him from inside the White House today. Let's shift to 2020 when we come back because poor old Joe Biden has finally realized he's got to do something and he's going after Elizabeth Warren who says she's not going to go after Joe Biden in large part because she kind of thinks he's old and really doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, she's playing the age card against Biden. Okay, I, look, I promised uh, that we'll get into Joe Biden and I do have some audio on that, but I, I, I want to deviate for a moment because we, we spent so much talking about just random politics and, and the news of the day stuff. I, I want to talk about something. Yesterday was International Pronoun Day. Oh, good grief. Well, I, I'm I'm in hot water today uh, because uh, I went on Twitter and pointed out that if you're born a boy, your pronouns are he, his, and him. And if you're born a girl, your pronouns are, are she, her, and hers. And uh, if you disagree, you're, you're crazy and wrong. Oh my goodness! They, the, the progressive activists really don't like it, and and you're silencing and just they they love to say live and let live, um, but you know that they're not really doing that, are they? Um, if if you don't agree and you want to say so, then you, if you speak out, you get punished. If you don't want to go along with it, you get punished. Uh, live and let live, but uh, that live and let live doesn't just go for uh, activists on the left. It also goes for people on the right who disagree. And and you should be able to agree to disagree. And, and you don't have to go to the store that refuses to have the, the let uh, boys in the girls' bathroom. And yet uh, the left now wants to shut those businesses down. Uh, the intolerance on the left is, is crazy. Uh, speaking of the intolerance on the left, so... I watch on HBO. It's not recommended for everyone. The language is something. Uh, the language is uncomfortable. Uh, but the, the HBO series Succession. Succession is a very good program. Uh, Succession, it, it's a lot of people's view it as a take on Rupert Murdoch and Fox and, of course, negatively portrayed. And that is there. Uh, but it's more also the, the uh, Sumner Redstone family, uh, basically elite media families. And the Murdochs and the Redstones were the basis of this. So I don't know if you guys realize. Um, so Sumner Redstone, billionaire whose daughter Sherry Redstone now run CBS and she wants to start a, a right wing, uh, Fox news competitor. I don't know if she can do it given the CBS's connection to Dan rather, but she, she wants to, well, it, it's actually national amusement parks. I think is the name of the, the parent company that owns CBS Viacom, their family company. It's also an amusement park company. 
And in succession, there's a tie-in. The family owns a conglomerate that does cruises. It launches rocket ships. It owns a Fox News-style right-wing channel that everybody hates because it's right-wing. Um, the, the amusement park stuff. And, and the family is just deeply, deeply dysfunctional. The father is a tyrant. Uh, he only loves his children uh, when they can do things for him. It's, it's very, very bizarre. Um, but... It's a good show. It is a well-scripted show. And it shows how the children in this family, as they come closer to their father and his power, become corrupted by it. It is so well-scripted. Well, the children, there are four children. There are three boys and one girl. And in the first season, the daughter, uh, Shiv, is in politics. She's the family is is rather conservative in their worldview, except her. She's the she's the the hero. She's the smart, savvy one, and she's in left wing politics, working for a Bernie Sanders type. Well, ultimately, the father brings her into the fold, or at least you're led to believe he is. I won't give away spoilers, Philip. If you're listening, buddy of mine hasn't seen the final final episode that I know of. Uh, otherwise, he hasn't breathlessly tweeted. It was a it was an amazing final episode. Um. But, but, uh, it is clear towards the end of the second season, uh, Shiv being set up, the girl being set up to actually run the company, her brothers have all failed, and now it's her turn, and winds up not so much at the end, it seems. And there are people in the critical community of, of critics, movie critics and TV critics, who are upset with this turn of events, that the plot twist at the end involved a cis-hetero white male doing something as opposed to letting the woman be the one to do it. And how dare they go back to conventional norms when we're supposed to be doing this? You see this with the Joker, too, by the way. Now, let me see. Where, where, where are we? Um, I'm going to Rotten Tomatoes because I want to see this. A uh, uh, buddy of mine pointed this out to me. Yes, the Joker right now is still considered fresh with a 68 review. But here's the thing. Uh, the critical score was in the 90s initially, and it has dropped to 68, while the audience score is an 89. And the reason is because... Left-wing reviewers do not like it. Uh, they don't like the fact that it is a cis-hetero white male who mobilizes people, and the plot twist at the end is the Joker is the founder and ideologue behind the Antifa movement, basically. You actually have at the end of the movie people holding up resist posters uh, who like the Joker, and they do not like it. Uh, the the left wing critics are really upset about this movie. Uh, I'm I'm pulling up some of them. You you should you got to hear some of these. Um, from Salon Salon Joker is a wildly uneven mess and a dangerous one in the wrong hands. My goodness gracious. Is it a dangerous manifesto that could inspire incels to commit acts of violence, as some of its critics fear? An edgy character study teeming with social commentary, as director Todd Phillips and co-writer Scott Silver seem to have intended? 
The answer is yes to all of those questions, but explaining why is not so simple. It's best to start by describing the skin of the film, its meandering plot, before trying to disentangle the messy entails. There are actually people who say that The Joker is a movie a dumb person would make about what they think a smart person would want to see. Something like that. Now, now I get in, in full disclosure, I haven't seen the Joker. Most of my friends have. And I was actually kind of surprised by the ones who really, really, really liked it. Uh, I, I could kind of predict the ones who would really, really hate it. And, and most of my friends have said I would really, really hate it uh, because it does take it. It is a very dark movie and it is dark and tormented the entire way through uh, pervasively a dark movie. Um, but what's so interesting here is that the the critical commentary from the critics is all about social justice and that it's morally irresponsible that there you're there and you root for the 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 villain and who is the villain the villain is a white guy the villain is not an oppressed minority well the villain actually is someone with mental health issues and they're really upset about it they're really upset about it. Um, they're upset because it turns the paradigm on its head. And they're upset because the, the bad guy is, is the protagonist of the film. And they usually like that, except the bad guy is a white guy. And having the bad guy be the white guy and you're, you're cheering on or finding some sort of connection to the white guy, you actually had people with this movie claiming that it was going to start a, a, a violence, incel violence. Now, do you have any idea what an incel is? Involuntarily celibate. Basically, dudes who can't get, well, can't have sexual relations because they're... They're socially out of touch. They're 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 overweight. They're whatever. Um, this is something that the rise of it, it, it's an undercurrent in the internet that people bought as real after a shooting, and, and now people want to talk about incels. I never even heard the term until a shooting a couple of years ago. Somebody who supposedly is involuntarily celibate can't get a date, can't have sexual relations with with a woman. And now you've got these uh, progressive movie critics say, oh, 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 this movie is going to fire up the incel. We're going to have violence, which, you know, in, in a day and age of social contagion, look, I, I look on the transgender movement as a social contagion. Frankly, uh, there are a lot of people out there who claim to be transgender, a, particularly middle school students who are claiming to be transgender just because people around them are claiming to be it. Uh, it's in the media so much, and it very much there's plenty of data out there to suggest that that is a social contagion. We know that shooters, are mass violence is a social contagion. And here you've got the media with no evidence whatsoever saying this movie is going to be a movie that causes people to go out and commit mass murder. And they're essentially advertising for the movie in the way they're doing it, uh, advertising for a social contagion. They hadn't even seen the movie or they'd only seen part of the movie, but they really hated the idea that this movie was about the bad guy was the protagonist and he was, in, in their words, a cis-hetero white male. All of this is a random tangent to get back to the central point of I'm increasingly 
convinced we can't believe movie reviewers anymore. Now, not that I typically do. There, there are a lot of there have always been movie reviewers out there who I've liked. I mean, so Sonny Bunch, uh, he's an internet friend. I, I don't think we. I think we've maybe met once in person. Sonny Bunch uh, did movie reviews for the Washington Free Beacon, and essentially, if Sonny Bunch likes a movie, I know it's going to be garbage. <laughs> I say that lovingly. I, I've said it to him, uh, and a lot. He he and I have just completely opposite views. He's he's very much a Zack Snyder film guy, and I think Zack Snyder makes terrible movies, but nonetheless. Um, but by and large, the movie critic business, and I'm not the only one to note this, the movie critic business is now being run over but with social justice warriors who are rating entertainment on not whether it's good entertainment or not, but whether or not it fulfills some sort of value for, for social justice. For example, let's go back to, to HBO and... and um, uh, Shiv and, and Succession. The woman didn't win. It was two women fighting it out, and that was a great episode, and everybody loved it. But now the the women appear not to be the ones who are dominant and in charge, and suddenly it's bad. And the same thing happened with Game of Thrones. Listen, I like Game of Thrones. It is not for everyone. It took me years to get into it. I only got into it because I was a captive audience, literally in a hospital bed, and didn't have a remote control to change the channel. But I wound up liking it. And uh, there, at the end of the show, I'm assuming by now I can I can give you the spoiler alert if you need it, uh, but Daenerys Targaryen, who became this kind of feminist icon, uh, everyone was supposed to bend the knee to, she got stabbed by her boyfriend and did not take the Iron Throne at the end. And it was predictable and foreseeable, more so apparently if you read the books, it wasn't going to come to that. Uh, but it happened, and people raided down the TV series, not because they didn't like And I, I wasn't a fan of the ending. I mean, it was okay. I, I didn't think it was as terrible as some people said, but it wasn't great. But there were actually critics in the, the entertainment industry who criticized the show because the woman they all rooted for did not win in the end. And it had nothing to do with the content. The, the abridged season was garbage. They should have extended it out another five episodes. They should have. The, the show runners were ready to get out of HBO. Do you know why they were ready to get out of HBO? Because they were going to do an alternative Civil War series where the South won. And it was going to show slavery bad and the Confederacy bad. But the whole idea that the South won was anathema to the social justice warriors, and they complained so much, HBO decided they weren't going to do it. And so Benioff and Weiss, who did Game of Thrones as well, got so fed up with HBO, they decided they were going to rush out the door as quickly as they could. And so they abridged Game of Thrones and got out the door quickly. HBO would have loved them to drag it out another couple of seasons, but they were done after HBO bailed on them. And sure enough, the social justice warriors came for them again. And now they've gone to Netflix or somewhere else. They're doing some other series. Or did they go to Disney? I can't remember. Social justice warriors are ruining absolutely everything. And you see it in the way the media is propping up Elizabeth Warren. You see it in the way the media is turning on other people in the media. For example, um, the CBS or the CBS, the CNN anchors at the debate wanted Elizabeth Warren to explain how much it would cost the middle class her tech, her health care plan. They wanted to actually know 
whether or not she would raise taxes on the middle class. And you had other people in the media attacking the CNN reporters for asking a very logical question because it doesn't matter because they're going to get health care benefits. This isn't a question you should ask Elizabeth Warren. Meanwhile, people went on Twitter into the archive and some of these same people who are reporters blasting CNN for asking about whether there would be a middle class tax increase. These same reporters who are blasting them for asking that were in 2012 attacking Mitt Romney for not saying he would cost a middle, cause a middle-class tax increase. And now they're mad at Pete Buttigieg. Why are they mad at Buttigieg? Because he's had the audacity to say this on CNN. Hey, let's talk about that moment that we just played in our intro where you went at it with Senator Elizabeth Warren about her Medicare for All plan, and you wanted a simple yes or no answer of will she raise taxes. And, and what she ended up saying time and again was, Americans' household costs will come down with her plan. What does it matter to you what bucket it comes out of? Well, not only is it important to have yes or no answers to yes or no questions at a time when people are so frustrated with Washington speak, but also there's still been no explanation for a multi-trillion dollar hole in this plan. I have a lot of respect for Senator Warren, but last night she was more specific and forthcoming about the number of selfies she's taken than about how this plan is going to be funded. And that's a real problem, especially when there's a better way to deliver health care coverage to everybody. Look, what most Americans want is to have an opportunity to walk away from their private plan, to have that what I call Medicare for all who want it alternative, but also to be able to keep their private plan if they would prefer. And I think that's the right answer, especially when you do the math and realize it's also an answer that is paid for, unlike the Medicare for all, whether you want it or not plans uh, that still have this giant question mark over how it's supposed to work. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's um, he went there and he's being attacked by social justice warriors in the media for being a cis-hetero white guy, except he's not hetero, he's gay. And they're they're really upset with him because he's a privileged white guy who happens to be gay. But apparently he's not gay enough. There have actually been attacks on Pete Buttigieg by people in the media that he's not gay enough. I wish I was making that up, but I'm not. And now they're upset with him for calling out Elizabeth Warren. They're precious. He could stand in the way of America having its first female president. And that's where all this gets to. It's not about treating people equal. It's actually about we we got to prop up the social justice warriors and try to get a woman elected president because we've got a black man elected president. Now we need a woman. we got to check all the boxes. Once we get the white woman, then we're going to need the black woman. And then we're going to need the Hispanic male. And then we're going to need the Hispanic female. we got to get them all. Then, then we can get to the, the gay candidate. Or maybe we can find a, a, a half-Asian transgendered person to check all the boxes at one time to advance the cause. But if you stand in the way of Elizabeth Warren now, members of the media think you're a terrible person. It is a religious conviction with these people. That's what all of this social justice warrior nonsense is. Secularism is a religion, and they are worshiping at the feet of Elizabeth Warren right now. You better not stand in their way or else. So randomly, as as an aside on this Elizabeth Warren stuff, um, it's worth noting that the journalists out there who actually agree with her, Elizabeth Warren's argument that she doesn't actually want to say, Bernie Sanders, to his credit, is honest about it. Bernie Sanders, on the debate stage the other day, said that, yes, middle class taxes would go up, 
uh, but they would still wind up saving money because their out-of-pocket health care costs would go down. And he offered that up to Elizabeth Warren, who refused to even treat it as legitimate. Now, you and I can disagree with Bernie Sanders, but that's his argument. That, yes, middle-class taxes are absolutely going to go up, but you'll still save so much money that you'll be okay with the taxes going up. I, I disagree with that. Um, because taxes, your taxes go up, but your health care costs only go down if you're incurring certain health care costs. Uh, and I'm actually got really good private insurance right now. Uh, and I assure you my health care costs would go up if my private insurance went away and I was on this government plan. But w- what's so striking to me is that the journalists who are advancing this argument for Elizabeth Warren in particular are journalists who have never worked in the real world. The journalists who have actually had jobs outside of journalism are the ones who are most interested in whether or not there would be a middle-class tax cut. And the ones who are most defensive of it are the ones who who have never worked outside the journalism bubble, which I find very uh, an interesting dichotomy. In, in fact, we see this in reporting across the board these days where those people in journalism who have never worked a day in their life outside of the news industry really – don't share a lot of the same ideas as people who have worked in the real world. One of the things after World War II is is the reason American journalism kind of became the 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 thing it became and, and had such a great reputation around the world is we had soldiers who had gone into World War II and came back and decided to tell stories in journalism and, and tell the facts of what was going on. And they had been in a war. They had been in a real world. Many of them had not set out to be journalists and became journalists later in life, and it shaped their journalism. And now we have the, these privileged elite rich kids who go to J school, they call it, uh, in the Ivy League. They get out. They're in a liberal bubble. They've been in a liberal bubble. They're secular atheists, uh, left-wingers, and they decide that journalism is not to tell the world what's going on, but to tell a narrative to shape public policy. It is a form of advocacy. And those reporters who come from the school of advocacy tend to be very left, and they tend to be fully on board with Elizabeth Warren. Those who went out into the real world and then decided, you know what, there are stories to tell. We need to raise people's awareness about what's going on in the world, give them the who, what, where, when, why of things so they can make up their own minds. Those are the people who are asking Elizabeth Warren, are you going to raise taxes? Those are the reporters we can respect. To go full circle on this, we go back to the NBC era where they misreported the president, and they did so out of a bias against the president because they have a narrative to tell that the president is bad and they want to advocate for the Democrats. And that's why there's so much media distrust these days. And when you have reporters attacking other reporters for daring to ask questions about tax increases, most of us will look at this and say, man, the reporter class really is biased these days. And they are. They're out to get us. They are. We might as well acknowledge it. 